Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, the Other People Podcast is offered freely all episodes of this program, more than 550 episodes and counting are all available for free. Your support makes a difference. If you want to support the podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Okay, thank you. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey, how's it going? This is the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. It's Other People. Happy holidays. How are you? Katya Apikina is my guest today. Her debut novel, which is generating buzz and earning plaudits, is called... The Deeper the Water, the Uglier the Fish. It's available now from $2 Radio. Katya Apakina and I, we had a good talk. I enjoyed meeting her. Get ready for that. It's coming up momentarily. I uh, have been hiking. As I mean, I've been hiking my entire adult life, but I've been hiking up at Griffith Park in Los Angeles uh, regularly, and I've been seeing a lot of coyotes. And I get up so early that I hike up there in the dark, especially this time of year. It's, you know, we're nearing the winter solstice. It's dark a lot, but I'm up there before the sun rises typically. And I think there's a big family, like a big pack of coyotes that live in the canyon, like there in Griffith. And I see them and I have my dog with me. And it's interesting. (laughs) I don't know why I'm telling you about this. I think about these coyotes a lot. I feel like, are they going to turn? Could they attack? They look at me and they look at Twiggy like we're food, like they're thinking about it. You know, they're about 15, 20 yards away. I just sort of like jingle my keys. Like I have my hands in my pockets and my hoodie and I just sort of jingle my keys and they typically go away. It's also kind of a thrill to see wild animals. I know coyotes, you know, people kind of consider them to be varmints. They're common in urban areas. It's probably... Among, like, uh, forms of uh, mammalian wildlife that are uh, predatory, probably the one of the most common uh, encounters that people have. There's a weird coexistence. I'm fascinated by the urban coyote is what I'm saying. And I'm also thinking, as I'm hiking up there in Griffith Park, that there is a mountain lion 
granted, it, like, what is it called? P21 or something like that. And it's famous. It's the mountain lion of Griffith Park in Los Angeles. If you've never heard of it, Google it. Griffith Park mountain lion. But there's a lion in Los Angeles living right up there by the Hollywood sign. And it's up there. And I hike and I see all these people. I'm just sort of baffled that there haven't been more encounters with this lion. Where, like, where does it hide? What does it do? Mountain lions are nocturnal. So I guess it's like out there at night. But it just sort of spooks me. And then there was that story not too long ago where the lion was found in a crawl space under a house in Los Feliz. Do you remember that? Did you see that on Twitter? Anyway. I'm getting text messages. Oh, it's pictures of uh, my nephew. He's wearing suspenders in front of a Christmas tree. It's pretty adorable. Uh, what else? You know, I, I want to issue a complaint. I'm going to sound probably like a Scrooge, but did anybody else feel like a slight annoyance by the fact that every year, like right after Thanksgiving, it's just a barrage of donate to this, spend money on this. It's Cyber Monday. It's this. It's, uh, can you please support? It's like, Jesus, can we just spread this out a little bit? Do we all need to do this all at the same time? Like, it's fine. I, there are plenty of worthy causes out there, but like, let's just relax a little bit between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Or maybe that's the, I mean, I know this is when people typically decide to be nicer or whatever, but it's too much. Calm down. Uh, I don't think I have anything else. Is there, I just had coyotes and uh, me being annoyed by uh, charity. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So let's get to the show, shall we? Katya Apakina is my guest. Her debut novel, The Deeper the Water, The Uglier the Fish, out there now from $2 
Radio. Here she is, folks. This is Katya Abakina. I feel like praise, I'm uncomfortable with praise, like on a personal level. Well, maybe when mistru- people but tell it, me like it does feel good though. Like the absence of it feels bad, but I don't know if I'm getting it necessarily. I mean, yeah, no, it probably does. I don't know. I feel like I'm just um, like a little bit, well, not a little bit, like a lot critical of, of everything and myself. So it's, it's. Somebody starts praising you. It's like, wait a minute, this can't be real. Well, no, it's not even that. It's just, it switches from just like the joy of the process to like being evaluated in some way. And I'm just like resentful maybe of being evaluated, even if it's positively or negatively, you know? Yeah. I don't love being, I don't think, does anybody love being evaluated? Maybe some people. Well, I think part of me like loves being evaluated, which is why I resent it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, um, like that kid in me that like really wants approval, you know? Yeah. But doesn't get it. I don't get it. I mean, like, I mean, some, I guess sometimes I get it, but I don't like being, I don't like even being the evaluator. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to evaluate anybody who likes to evaluate people. Oh, but people do. They do. But I mean, I don't, but I think it's a type of person that really enjoys that. But I mean, I say that and like in in my day to day, I guess I'm evaluating people. I'm like, Oh, I like that person or that person sort of bugs me or, I mean, we're all like, we all have that like inner thing, but I guess I'm talking about something more formal or like in, yeah. in, in like a workspace or I guess in, in an art space. But, uh, I don't know. It makes me uncomfortable. I, I, I can, I'm speaking to, uh, to like work stuff where you're like wondering what people think all the time. I guess that's natural. Yeah. It sucks though. I don't like it. Wondering what people think. Like, is it, is it going all right? How to be like, there's a lot uh of get, there's uh a lot of guesswork that goes into it. I guess when you're getting like reviews for a book by comparison, it's all written down. Right. So I mean that to me, that's almost like preferred. At least you know where people stand. I think sometimes if you're in like a uh, circumstances of evaluation, there are a lot of cards that aren't necessarily shown to you. Yeah, I guess it would be like watching somebody read your book live. Right. <laughs> just like, like looking at their face. And then, like every once in a while, just sort of like stopping and like looking at you and being like, hmm. <laughs> oh. Or just like, why are they pausing? What are they laughing at? What I, are they not laughing at? I need to, I, you know, speaking of pausing, I need to take a moment to just acknowledge the fact that uh, there are skylights in my garage. And because of the time of day that Katya and I are talking, the sun is beaming down directly into my face during this conversation. So if you're at home listening, I want you to be able to picture me basically with my eyes closed, talking into a microphone. I, I feel like I may be washed out. Is it too bright? Is it too much me? No, but you're like squinting a lot, yeah. <laughs> a lot looking at me. I mean, that is like really bl- like a blinding beam of sun. It really is. So I'm just, I'm going to close my eyes. I don't want to be rude, but I just feel like it's better. I can just listen. I don't have to squint. There's no, you know, um, acrobatics going on facially do you want me to close my eyes too <laughs> yeah would you please okay i want us to be on equal I footing feel very vulnerable right now <laughs> so let's get let's start at the beginning where are you from well i was born in moscow in russia and i came to the u.s when i was three and a half i came to i came to boston but first we were in italy and austria we were living there waiting for permission, I guess, for asylum, because we were refugees. And I came with my mom and her parents. And then my dad came like about a year later. Like refugees in what sense? Like meaning, uh, 
Like, was it impoverished or was it like fleeing like political persecution or, you know what I'm saying? Like, what was the circumstances? So it was, it was political. And also, so my grandfather, um, needed heart surgery and he could only get it in the U S and he was dying. And, um, also my family had refused to join the communist party. So it was political and they had applied to leave the Soviet union before my grandfather was even sick actually. And they were like waiting. And while they were waiting, they lost their jobs because by applying, um, they kind of became like persona non grata by saying that they wanted to leave. So they had been scientists and they had been forced out of their jobs. And they were like my grandfather who was very sick. And like, he, um, was kind of turning blue because of his heart problems. He was doing all this sort of manual labor, like um, fixing up people's apartments. And while stuff he like was this sick? Yeah, while he was sick. And then my mom is an artist, and so she was, um, you know, like selling artwork to help the family. But yeah, it was just like pretty dire. And then they went on a hunger strike, um, my mom and my gra- my grandmother and my mom. And... Um, we left like with a kind of high profile family. They were, um, chess champions. And what's that? We do. What would we know? It's not Kasparov, is it? No. And I actually don't remember their names. Um, but I mean, like that's very Russian, like high profile chess family, right? A high profile chess (laughs) champion family. I always in my head, like said that it was check that they were checker champions. (laughs) And I was telling someone that once and they're like, but checkers are like a solved game. So you can't really be like a checkers champion. I mean, you can be really good at checkers, right? I guess, but I don't think that, yeah. So then I like asked my uh, mom about it and she's like, what are you talking about? They're chess champions. So anyway, they're chess champions. And then we, um, there was like a subcommittee of Kennedy and Carrie who were like trying to get our family out. And it was sort of like a high profile case at the time of like getting us out. And, um, this was in 86. So this was before, you know, the wave of, um, immigrants that came in like the nine, the early nineties. So like in, I, I do have some like sense of recollection for this, like this wave. I think, I think I've actually talked to authors who were part of that wave Yeah. of like early nineties, Russian immigrants. This is after the, what the fall of the Berlin wall and the dissolution of the Soviet union, a bunch of people came over. Yeah. I mean, most of them are probably Jews coming over like Russian. There's like a big wave of Russian Jewish immigrants. And there was just like a, there was a, an oppression, oppressive situation in the newly formed Russia post-Soviet. Yeah. And And pre-Soviet too. It was oppressive as well, but yeah. Okay. That was, but that was the opportunity to get the hell out. I think so. Yeah. So where did you guys, how old were you again? I was three and a half. So I was four, I think, by the time we got here. Okay. So stopovers in Austria and Italy. Yeah. And then you land where? In Boston. In Bo- oh, that's right. In Boston. In Boston. Because my grandfather went to Mass General and he had, I think, six bypasses. And how did, did it help? I mean, was he Yeah, able- he's alive. He's still alive? Yeah, he's still alive. Oh my God. Yeah. And this was, you know, in 80, 86. How old is this man? Um, oh God. I think he just turned 80. Oh, okay. So, but yeah. he, he was a relatively young man when this was happening. Yeah. I mean, all the men in his family, I think died in their forties from heart trouble. Did he have like a, like a congenital or like a, some sort of defective valve or something? Well, like, he was a heavy smoker Oh, and that'll do it. And stuff. And stuff. <laughs> yeah. Did he, is, is he still smoking? 
No, he quit. He went to this um, this hypnotist called the Mad Russian. Have you heard of him? No. Oh, well, he's this guy in Boston, and people like from all over the world come to see him. He's this hypnotist that helps people like quit smoking and I think other stuff too. Like my mom went to him for her fear of flying. And it worked? Yeah, it works. And it worked for my grandfather. It, I mean, I feel like one addiction is usually like replaced with another, you know, but... Yeah. What's the new addiction? For for my grandfather? Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it's a new addiction, but I I think he just would I don't know. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I mean, sometimes people like cuz I like I I He's I used, listening to this, I think. I, I used to smoke cigarettes. Yeah. And I do believe in replacement behaviors. Yeah. I don't necessarily know about addiction, but like I went from like Cigarette, like the, the way that I was able to quit smoking is I just became like an exercise person. Uh-huh. I did something that was like totally incompatible with it. Yeah. But, uh, and it also, I think there's some sort of like, you know, neurochemical effect that you get from exercise that you sort of get hooked on, mm-hmm. but better than I've heard of that, but I've never experienced <laughs> it myself. <laughs> so yeah, I just didn't That's know if like he, say. if he started playing bridge or, you know, whatever. No, but. I mean, no, he did. He didn't. But but the, but he did quit smoking and it did work because of the hypnotist. So, he said that he would like picture himself. Um, he would like hold the cigarette and be unable to get it in his mouth. Like he'd miss. Like he'd be holding it in his fingers and then he'd try to put it in his mouth and it would just like slide away, like in other directions. Because the hypnotist direction. like programmed him for this. Yeah, I guess so. See, I, I've you know, watched people be hypnotized before on TV. Uh And I guess it's, it's a real thing. You can put somebody into a state, but not everybody can go there. I have a feeling I could not be hypnotized. Interesting. My dad, I don't think can be hypnotized. I just, I can't, I can't imagine I could let go enough to be hypnotized or something. Mm. Like I would be hanging on. Do you meditate? Yeah. So it's kind of like that, right? I guess, but I mean, you would have to experience my meditation. (laughs) It's not some serene, you know, like thoughtless state. I'm really sitting there just like watching myself go bananas mentally, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been hypnotized, but I don't know that if it worked really or not. Like, what what was it, it for? Really. Was it try to change a behavior? Um, yeah. Well, there's like this, when I lived in St. Louis, there's this one yoga class that would end with hypnosis. That was just like part of the. Like, you know, the end, the kind of the wind down Shavasana part would be a hypnosis. Like what? Like what? what do you say? Um, I mean, that's like a deep state of relaxation, but it wasn't necessarily like with a specific aim, you know, like it wasn't like to quit something or something like that. But I think like with a lot. Oh, oh, I did also. Um, I tried to do this hypno birthing thing where like to manage pain. Um, you like hypnotize yourself while you're giving birth, but I definitely just got an epidural like, pretty quickly. <laughs> I don't think I was like able to maintain very well. Yeah, no, there's like, uh, I think, I mean, my wife, my wife was never not getting an epidural. Like there was never yeah. a consideration, but, and, and you know what? More power to people who go without, but I don't judge more power. I don't know. Equal power. Yeah. Equal power. <laughs> I like, well, I, I do not begrudge anybody who does it either way. Let me just put it that right. way. Um, so, okay. So you come over, you go to Boston, your grandfather has successful heart surgery Yeah. and your parents, like you guys had to just start over from scratch, right? 
Yeah. And then my dad joined us like a year or less than a year later. So I think actually like my earliest memory is from before he had come. So I think he probably came when I was four and a half. So, cause I remember knowing that he had a beard and like asking my mom anytime I saw anyone with a beard, like, is that him? Oh, and it wasn't him. Yeah. But then he eventually was able to join us. And what was the lag? Did he have to tie up loose ends? Back? You know what I'm saying? Why was there a lag between him and you guys? His parents wouldn't let him leave. So in, in Russia, like you needed permission from your parents. Cause I think the idea is you would be taking care of them in their old age. So if he was their only son and they wouldn't, they were very pro Soviet. And, um, so that's like, I mean, that's interesting because, you know, you always hear in, in an American context, it's like, oh, you know, my parents were really conservative and then I became this like liberal hippie. Yeah. And in, in Soviet union, it's like, my parents are like really pro Soviet and I'm a capitalist. A capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the, that's the youthful the rebellion. rebellion. <laughs> yeah. It's actually interesting right now. I'm, um, my grandmother, my dad's mom had written these memoirs that she left me and she died last year and I've been reading them and translating them. You speak Russian? Yeah, I, I speak Russian. So yeah, it's like she, it's just, she survived, you know, her whole family was killed in the Holocaust. She like escaped and like walked across Russia on foot basically. Um, cause she was from Poland and she was Jewish and so it's like more Jews from Poland died in the Holocaust than anywhere else. Right. I want to say I just saw numbers. I want to say I just saw numbers, and it was like an incredible, like over almost three million. If yeah. I, but I could be misremembering. But it yeah. was it was a lot. Yeah, and she was the only one who survived. And like, how did she get away? Well, she was in school um, in in Belarus, and she she was in school there, and she like the bombing started, and she you know she like ran on foot by train. Jesus. To her, there was like one living relative, her aunt, her mom's sister in Moscow, and she went there. Um, but yeah, I've just been like reading these memoirs. And, and so anyway, from there she went and she kind of became very pro-Soviet, like just very brainwashed, you know? And then she, they ended up immigrating like a few years after we did. Eventually, like in the mid nineties, they, they eventually caught on. They're like, let's get, yeah. And just being like, we didn't know we had no idea, I, you know? Well, I mean, that's defensible. It's pretty, it was a pretty, it was, and maybe into some extent still is pretty insulated. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I feel like, um, I grew up kind of hearing my mom's account of things and I don't, I don't know that she found it defensible. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's also kind of like, I. it's interesting reading these memoirs now because it's like I'm trying to kind of figure out what I think, not like what the family mythology is, but just what I think. And I've been doing this kind of project where I'm making notes in the margins, like kind of in response to what my grandmother is saying, because I want to give this to my daughter to have these, like, these memoirs, you know? Would you ever do something literary with it? Yeah, well, right now, actually, I, ha I have, like, an excerpt of it that I'm publishing. What do you mean? Like, an, like, like you've edited her? I've edited an excerpt of her memoir, and I've been also, like, doing these kind of track change notes on it, and that is sort of appearing as an essay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. But nothing, like, where you would then fictionalize her story or something like that? Uh, I don't know. I think... 
I mean, I'm a fiction writer. Nonfiction is very um, like uncomfortable to me. It just feels very like I would make a very bad journalist, you know. Like I have, I feel like I believe in the spirit of the truth, and like facts are an inconvenience, <laughs> you know. That I, I, so I don't know. I would be open to it. I don't know that I have like specific plans to do that at the moment, but. And I want to ask you before I forget, just like from a persp- from your perspective. Uh, and from the experiences that your family has been through, like, I think there's a tendency among, especially in like the writerly, uh, set, you know, I guess I, I don't know. I don't want to make like generalizations, um, too much, but I feel like in the world of like literary fiction, literary nonfiction, academia, there's a lot of skepticism about capitalism as a way of organizing things. There's obviously a lot of uh, valid criticisms uh, that can be made about it in the way it leaves a lot of people behind and there's a lot of cruelty sort of built into the system. Mm-hmm. But as somebody who immigrated from an oppressive uh, communist society uh, in in a quest to find more economic freedom or whatever, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying? Like going in search of capitalism. Yeah. Like I feel like we're now at a moment where like, you know, there's a lot of people agitating for democratic socialism on the left. Mm-hmm. And I just, I guess I just want to hear you. Like, do you have thoughts on that? Like, where do you fall? I mean, I think I w- I'm against like a totalitarian regime, but I'm for universal health care. And I don't know. I'm probably more on the socialist side than than the capitalist side. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... I feel like I'm not one of those people who like can talk very intelligently about big ideas. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like I, it's just, I'm so in the details of things. Um, I've been thinking about that stuff a lot, you know, but, but I don't know that I can like talk very coherently and I feel like I don't read that widely. Like I read a lot of fiction. I mean, I read many books a week of fiction and many books a week. Well, like short ones. I don't know. Okay. Um, but I don't, I mean, I read a lot, but I don't read a lot of nonfiction really yeah. at all. And when I do, it's more like of a memoir type of variety. So yeah, I don't, I don't know, but I, I feel like this is, it's definitely what's happening seems very cruel to me. Well, and it also like, I think that there, I mean, cause it's the, it's more nuanced than like being an either or. Like, I think right. capitalism can coexist with democratic socialism. Yeah. And this current system that we have, which is, I think, skewed more in the direction of capitalism, also contains elements of socialism. So I think, like, people often couch it in this binary way when the truth is that it's already integrated. And the question is one of balance, not either or. I guess. I mean, it just feels to me like all of it is this pyramid scheme that's coming crashing down right now. You know, it's like assuming that there's an infinite... Um, supply of things that there is not, you know, like it's a finite, we live in a finite world. It's a finite system. Finite resources. Right. Exactly. Populations growing. Yeah. It's like, when, when is push going to come to shove? Like maybe that's the point we're I think at now. It's shoving. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, and what is it like, I'm interested too, um, about, uh, to know about like what it must be like for somebody who is, has Russian roots yeah. and who immigrated yeah. and to now see what's happening in our current like historical moment where 
like kind of like this old Soviet. I feel like Vladimir Putin, you know, he's like old Soviet KGB guy. He's yeah. been running the show in a totalitarian way and yeah. is now essentially running America, like to some extent. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's like this dovetailing that's happening where the the two countries are, um, I don't know, the, the intensity of the relationship feels like it's risen back to a peak that was around at the time when you were immigrating. Yeah. You know, it feels like there's some sort of um, dovetail happening. Like what, what's your take on it? Well, it's interesting. Cause you know, my family, they were obviously political in, in Russia, you know, they were like refusing to join the party and, you know, making these active choices. And then when they came to the U S it was like a freedom to not be involved right. and not be political. And now they're getting involved again. Cause they're seeing that that freedom is, doesn't actually exist. You know, you can't be passive and I mean, I don't know what you can really do other than, well, whatever. Yeah. Tweet. But they're trying. <laughs> they're not tweeting. But yeah, I feel like they're they're becoming a lot more like they didn't used to vote and now they vote. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think like one of the, I mean, I've always been pretty engaged from a civics perspective. Mm-hmm. I've, always, I've voted since I was 18. Mm-hmm. I've re- I, I like I like to read about politics and yeah. I like to like know, try to know what's going on. Yeah. I find it genuinely fascinating and, um, but I feel like one of the lessons of the past couple of years, it seems to me, is that I, I find it really hard to, I find it increasingly hard to tolerate anybody who's like, I just don't, I don't want to pay attention. Yeah. Like, I don't care. Like if, if you're a person of conscience and intelligence, like you have, like from here on out, like we have to engage as citizens. Otherwise we're ceding the field to bad actors. And I don't feel like, you know, let's say Trump gets tossed or he resigns or whatever. I don't think that we're at some finite point where we can go back to being like apathetic or disengaged. Like, I feel like hopefully this will in, impress upon people the necessity of being hands-on. Otherwise, yeah. otherwise you're going to lose it. You know what I'm saying? And, and the flip side is if everyone really did like pay attention and if, you know, we start teaching civics in our schools in, in a serious way. And if election day became a national holiday, mm-hmm. do you know what I'm saying? Like there's things we can do yeah. that I think would yield like a very net positive effect and would it, like, wouldn't make things perfect, but it would inject a, a very necessary, um, like jolt of sanity into the system. Yeah. Well, I think people feel, you know, helpless and overwhelmed and they don't know what to do. So they just shut down because they can't, um, I don't know. It's like, how do you, I think a little bit, it has to do with like how you respond to like dramatic, traumatic situations too. You know, some people just freeze up some people. I mean, I guess some people also probably just don't care and maybe you're, maybe those people do exist, but I think there are people who care and feel like nothing they do will make a difference. And so in order to continue living, they kind of shut that part of their brain down is my guess. I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, I think that may be the case. Do you think, but like, I guess the question then is like, that can't be the, that can't be the answer. <laughs> no, no, I don't think, it, I don't think it is the answer. I don't know. I mean, I think what you're saying like makes a lot of sense. Start with that with civics being taught at schools and Education. You know, having that sense of social responsibility that seems to be like less 
instilled now. I don't know. Mm, we've gotten away from it. I don't know. I have like, I have like strong, but I feel like scattered thoughts about lots of stuff. Uh, like, uh, you know, lots of issues that, um, exist yeah. at the heart of all of what's going on. And it's, it's just very difficult to feel like comprehensive in one's understanding, especially when it comes to trying to kind of, uh, decide what needs to be done. Yeah. But hopefully like there are some basic fundamental things that we can all agree on. Yeah. Like when I think about, you know, being an immigrant and like sort of, you know, the idea of like kind of replaying your like childhood traumas over and over. Like I'm someone who moved, well, until moving to LA was moving constantly, like from college to through my twenties, you know, to when I landed here in Los Angeles, I moved like, you know, multiple times a year. Why? Um, well, when I lived in New York, I was just like from one shitty living situation to another that was like maybe equally shitty, but like slightly different. So it felt like a little bit less inhumane, you know? Um, and then, and then I moved to New Orleans because of Katrina. I was like doing relief work there. And then I went back to New York and then I went back to New Orleans and then I moved to St. Louis. I don't know. It's just this like kind of urge, like moving as the best thing in the world, you know, cause you get to start over, you get to, um, you've been doing, you've been doing this since you were a kid. Yeah. Like I know, I know how to, um, I know how to just like burn everything down and, you know, start over. And so I guess with a lot of this stuff too, it's like, there's an impulse to just like, this isn't working. Let's just like abandon it and go somewhere else. And then there's also an impulse to, you know, like put down roots and stay. Well, I think there's, I mean, I think it's very natural considering how insane things have gotten for people to be like, man, sure would be nice to expatriate right now. Sure would be nice to like, like move to Fiji, just like, you know, and like, I, I think it's a very natural fantasy to have, but I think there's the other side of me that's like, no, I'm not leaving. Yeah. I, I got to resist that impulse. Like we have to stay here and like take responsibility for it and try to fix it and fight back. Are you from here? From the States? No, no. From LA? No. Okay. I'm from the Midwest. Okay. Yeah. But I don't know. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. You know? And I, I think, but I also have like, you talk about moving. I moved around a bit as a kid Yeah. and I have had lots of different homes and uh, I have some wanderlust mm-hmm. to me. It's changed a bit with having kids and stuff. You can't, right. it's harder to burn it down and yeah. move around once you have little ones, but yeah. I, I get it. And yeah. there's like a sense of adventure to it too, you know? And there's something really stimulating about changing your physical environment and being in a place where you are uh, not familiar. And you can become a new person in each place. You That's know? right. I mean, you can't, but you can for a little bit at least until it catches up, until the old person catches yeah. up with you. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's something I had to kind of learn the hard way is that like, you know, you can, you think that if you change your physical environment or you move somewhere far afield, it's going to somehow fix things. Uh, but you can't get away from yourself everywhere you go. There you are. And yeah. eventually you got to reckon with that. You got to like change what's in your head. That's true. But I always feel like when people talk about that, like there's like the A thing about, um, like a geographic or whatever, right. That like that right. kind of idea that you can't escape from yourself. But also that seems to like not take into account that places have the strong, their own strong energies, you know, like especially places like New York or something where when I go there now, it's just so intense for me. And like, I couldn't handle living there. I lived there for, I went to college there and then I lived there for a few years afterwards. And it just, I just could not do it. When I first moved there, I was 
so I feel like it was like my first love, you know, it was a place, not a person. Like I felt so intensely in love with New York. And then, you know, it's like the Joan Didion thing about like, you know, goodbye to all that, where she, she talks about leaving it. I feel like it's kind of a experience that so many people go through because so many people live in New York when they're young and then like can't handle it anymore and leave. Um, but I feel like that was one of those places where it seems like it's not a places aren't neutral, you know, that's so right. That's right. You are a different person in different places to some extent. Well, yeah. And a, yeah. And, and a place because of the, the charge of its energy or yeah. like whatever's happening culturally or, you know, there it's going to affect your identity inevitably. Right. So if you are going someplace to try on a new mode or whatever, yeah. um, yeah, I get it. And I think, I think that too, I, I put a lot of thought into like the environment that you're in, in terms of how healthy you are, Yeah, like mentally, spiritually. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, like if you're living in a really violent place or some place that's like, there's a lot of indigence and I know a lot of people don't have any choice, but I'm just saying like, that's going to affect your sense of identity and it's going to yeah. affect, uh, obviously how you feel and, yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. And so... Well, yeah, because when you're in a place like New York and you're just faced constantly with people's suffering, like you're in such close proximity to so many people. And if you're sensitive to people's suffering, you have to learn to not be or else you just can't live there. Right. And that's why you had that's why it became overwhelming for you. For me. Yeah. Just feeling like that I was kind of dehumanizing people in order to move through my life without being affected by it was dehumanizing me in turn, you know, I feel some of that in LA, to be honest. Oh yeah. No, LA too. I mean, especially depending on the neighborhoods you live in, you know, right. Like the homeless population here is, yeah. If you're downtown, I mean, that's, I mean, it's overwhelming to see there's 10,000 people down there on any given night living in tents. I think it's the largest, right? It's the largest skid row in the country. It would make sense. I mean, the weather's good. You know, it's like, if you're going to be living in the streets, it seems like it would be more hospitable than like freezing your ass off in like a subway tunnel. Um, but it's like, I don't know. It's one of those things like that really moves the needle for me and makes me sort of shut down. Cause it's like, what do you do with this? Right. And a lot of people don't want help. Yeah. It just seems like one of these human problems. That's like, how did we get to this place? Mm -hmm. feels like, it feels like the, I don't know. It feels like it's like the genie's out of the bottle. And it's like, how do you get this back in? And how do we mm-hmm. make this better? These, these people are so damaged in many cases. And uh, I don't know, it bums me out. Yeah. And also, I mean, it's just such a numbers thing too. I mean, I feel like there's something about living in a city that feels kind of unnatural because, you know, it's not, you don't see people as individual people that you know, you know? Like in my neighborhood, there's like a crazy guy and I always see the crazy guy and I kind of like, he's the crazy guy, you know, (laughs) he's not like just one of thousands of crazy people, you know, living in. So I don't know. It just, it doesn't, I find that very difficult too. Like the depersonal, uh, you know, the depersonalized. Yeah. It's just like, you just see suffering, you know, and you feel it if you're like at all sensitive to that kind of thing. Where were you? Like you said, you landed in Boston. Is that where you spent your childhood? Yeah, I grew up in Brookline, and um, then I went to I moved to New York when I went to college. Where'd you go to college? I went to Columbia. Oh, you did. Okay, so you go to Columbia. You do college in New York. Great place to go to college, and yeah, must have been fun to be young in New York. 
It was fun. Yeah. I mean, I just was like completely smitten with it. Um, not with Columbia, like in particular, I feel like it was pretty, um, I mean, I think it's what I needed. Like I had, I'd gone to this really kind of high pressure, fancy private school, like from second grade to through high school. And I was just like free, you know, when I was in college. So I wasn't really that interested in anything. What was, was the studying. Pre- what was the prep school or the high pressure private school? It was called Buckingham Brown and Nichols. So how did you, like, I mean, how do you get into that if you just landed? <laughs> was it? Well, I was on financial aid and yeah, I feel like I was, um, your parents were just like, we want her to be educated. You I applied. mean, my parents, yeah, they're like crazy Russian immigrants. Like I was doing like algebra in second grade and stuff. Like I was forced to do so much, um, extracurricular work, like growing up. What's I remember called? like my summers of having to sit by this window overlooking a lake and just like having to do like binomial distribution or something. And just like, <laughs> I don't even know what that feeling is. Feeling of just like, I want to be outside. <laughs> it's just like so strong. I can just like call it up just by thinking about what's it. What's the, what's the after school math thing? It's called like Kumon or something. Oh yeah. My mom's like on me right now about getting my four-year-old daughter to, to join it. Really? Yeah. And part of me is just like, I'm not putting her through that. And then part of me is like, well, you do get I? ahead. You get ahead. <laughs> Am I being a bad parent? I've had that not, thought. I'm like, you know? cause like my, you know, my daughter, um, when it was going, was, is no longer, but was going to this school. There were a lot of like Korean, it was in K-Town. There were a lot of Korean kids in her class and they're all doing like, they're learning to play the violin and they're going to Kumon after school and they're doing all these things. And I'm like, fuck, like, am I failing by not pushing her harder? And yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to do. It's hard as a parent. You want to let your kid be a kid, but you also, I want her, I don't want her to like fall behind or, you know, were you pushed a lot as a kid? No, I was, no. I mean, I was encouraged to, to do well in school for yeah. sure. And school was definitely important. Yeah. And I was a good student up until like, you know, the middle to end of high school when mm-hmm. I just sort of, I don't know, I'm still sorting out what happened, but I just lost interest. And I went through some stuff as a teenager, like, um, like I think I witnessed really tragic deaths in like many in rapid succession that like in hindsight, like took the wind out of my sails spiritually. I was just like, well, what the fuck? Like nothing matters. I kind of yeah. became, um, not a nihilist, but, <laughs> yeah. but you know what I'm saying? Like more like that, like yeah. where I was just like, fuck it. Yeah. Um, but then that's also, I think it's also kind of just like I was an adolescent. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to like really define it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, school was important. I definitely was a good student, but I was also, I had kind of like a really apple pie, you know, I, mm-hmm. I wasn't spoiled, but I was kind of coddled. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I don't even know if that's the right word. Like my mom did my laundry and do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I had an easy childhood Yeah, comparatively, I think to a lot of people, mm-hmm. um, my folks got along. I don't know. Yeah. But I did well in school. I just didn't do like after school algebra in second grade. <laughs> right. Um, but right. I've heard that story told by a lot of people, most of whom I think are immigrants. Yeah. You know, that's very common, like cross-culturally, yeah. not just like Russian immigrants, yeah, but like, no, it is. you know, it's like you want to push your kids to get ahead and yeah. um, that makes sense. Yeah. And I feel like I was pretty into academics, you know, like I, I was 
curious about stuff. Like I, it was interesting to me, not like the algebra in second grade, but just, I mean, like in high school and stuff, but it was just like such, it just felt so freeing to be away from that pressure and be on my own in New York. Sure. And then when I left New York for New Orleans, that was like when actual freedom set in. Because I was just like, I've been duped this whole time, you know? I thought that this way of living was like the only way of living. And then I discovered that like, you don't have to follow the rules or do all this boring stuff. Like I was working in the mailroom of a financial company when I... um graduated from college and it was like a job where I didn't know what job I had gotten. Like <laughs> what, what did you, what did you major in at Columbia? Uh, like English, I guess oh, okay. I was in the writing program and, but nothing financial. No, 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 no. It was nothing financial, but like it was this place D shot and they kind of had this policy of hiring artists. And so they would like advertise in like the New York review of books with these kind of vague ads that were like, do you want to make, a lot of money and and like are you an artist this is the perfect day job for you you know so i like got this they asked me for like my sat scores and stuff i had like no idea what the job was when i got there and then i got there and they gave me this like mail cart and i had to deliver mail to like people that i went to college with you know and it just was like the worst you know it was just like was the worst having to sit there and like this policy of hiring artists to do admin jobs and like all these admin people are like you know miserable because they're um i mean maybe some of them weren't i don't know but i was definitely miserable and after three months it's like this trial period i was i was fired um and like all these boxes had come in that day that were just covered in blood like the delivery driver had gotten a nosebleed and just there's just like smears of blood on all these boxes and they're like sitting on my desk and i just gotten fired and i just remember thinking like i don't have to deal with this and i just bought a ticket to new orleans for like a few days from then to move and just there. left yeah and just left why new orleans well it was after katrina so i wanted to volunteer oh uh, yeah you know like my uh family roots my parents are from louisiana oh yeah so i've spent a lot of time down there um and you, you had some sort of like creative awakening down there right it seems like or life awakening yeah like a life awakening Maybe a creative one too. Yeah. What was it like? Was I mean, obviously, it must be really, it must have been really powerful to see the after effects uh, or the aftermath of Katrina. Right. But also, like, it's a rich culture down there. It's a creative culture and yeah. stuff in, in New Orleans, you know, yeah. musically and yeah. uh, you know, like, was that part of it too? Or yeah, definitely. It just was so free. Like people um, had such a different way of living, you know, from compared to New York or Boston. Um, and then also I was doing something that was like actually helping people, you know, like what were tangibly, you doing? um, like I was doing relief work. So I was like gutting houses and like, you know, just doing different types of stuff. It was this like anarchist organization that, um, so we were like living in tents and, um, doing different things. Living in tents where? In the ninth ward. Damn. Yeah. In a, a parking lot of a church. Wow. Yeah. That's an experience. Yeah. And, you know, the city, this was in January. So it was like six months after Katrina and, you know, at the end of August. Um, Yeah, I don't know. It it was really like a transformative experience in a lot of ways. How long were you living in a tent in the Ninth Ward? Mm, 
not super long because then I met this woman who was just this like amazing woman who took me into her family and I was like living on her couch then for like multiple months after that. I was going to say, cause like that, like in January in New Orleans, living in a tent, doable. It was cold. But once it gets hot. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Forget about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, the tent was like a large tent with multiple cots in it. Oh, okay. Um, like an army tent. Yeah. I don't know. It was, I, I haven't like thought about it a lot since like in a while, but yeah. And how did you meet this woman who took you in? So she was a friend of this, um, movie director that I knew that I had worked, I had done translations of poetry for a book that he was editing. Oh, the movie director? Yeah. He was also editing this book of Russian poems by this, uh, poet Mayakovsky and like essays about Mayakovsky and stuff. Who's and the, so, who's the director? We'll, we'll be... uh, his name is Michael Almereda. Okay. He did, um, I mean, he's done a ton of different movies. You, you might know like Hamlet with Ethan Hawke. That was like, I think one of his first big movies that he did. Wow. Okay. Um, so then we wrote a movie together too and shot it in New Orleans. And I ended up, you know, I ended up staying in New Orleans for a while and working on movies. Yeah. They film a lot of movies in Louisiana. They, I think they have like friendly tax breaks for productions mm-hmm. and stuff like that. They do. So how many, like how long in total were you down there? couple years? A or? couple years, yeah. Uh, I was kind of back and forth between New York for a little bit, but I left there in like 2009 to move to St. Louis. So between for, 06 and 09. What was in, what was St. Louis? I went to grad school for writing. At Washington and St. Louis? Yeah, WashU. They've got an MFA program? They do. Yeah, and it, it was, was great. It was a great experience. Yeah, it was like so different from my Columbia experience where like I don't even think I had an advisor. Um, it's only five people per year and it's a two-year program well five fiction and five poets and it just was very nurturing supportive i don't know I, I that's like when i actually became a writer i was doing a lot of writing projects before then like translation and screenwriting but this felt like kind of this it was like a huge leap for me it was it, like where i was actually fig- like i figured out a lot of stuff while i was there it was what, like did, very what did you exciting. figure out um just like how to put a story together, you know, like I wanted to write fiction, but I didn't quite know how, or I felt like very limited to it by like, I didn't feel like I really had the tools I needed. And I feel like it was kind of a more experimental program. And so I was reading like wild stuff that, you know, thinking about different forms and realizing like how there really aren't rules. Yeah. Yeah. And also just like realizing how to, that there aren't rules, but also figuring out how to like structure a story into a thing. So it's not just this like puddle. Right. Yeah. Like like there are, I mean, it's like complicated to talk about because like, yeah, there are some rules, Yeah. but it's like learning how to maybe break them wisely or something. Yeah. And just reading a ton of other people's stuff and just being part of an actual writing community. Um, you know, these are people I'm still like, anytime I write anything, these are the people I share it with before I share it with anyone else. You know, are there books that you read that were like really pivotal for you during that era? I mean, no, you, you said, just said there were, but like, can you name any that were like extremely helpful or eye opening? Um, well, so they weren't like how to type of books, but actually speaking of how to type of books, when I was teaching there, 
because um, part of like your second year and then I was also a third year was was teaching fiction. I did use a textbook, which I'd like never had. And it like just the process of talking about these things that had sort of been intuitive to me, but being able to sort of explain them to someone else was a really big thing for me. And the the textbook I used was um, by this woman, Janet Burroway. It was, I don't know, like the art of fiction or something like that. But it was it was very kind of like practical exercises, talking about point of view, talking about, you know, all these things that I think we all kind of know if we read a lot, but we can't really quite um, like until I talked about it, I, I, I didn't really know. I didn't really know that I know I didn't. Yeah. Teaching is a great education. <laughs> yeah. It forces your because I went through the same thing. Like I had to teach like basic the basic tenets of creative writing and fiction and had yeah. a, I had to select a textbook and it, I don't know, it forces your hand. All of a sudden you have to sit there and be like, wait, what, what the fuck is point of view? And right. I got to make sure I can talk about this and make right. sense of it for people. And you wind up learning yourself, you know, new things along the way. Yeah. Like especially stuff with point of view and point of telling and things about like thinking of how close you are to the character. And like, my, I think my thing was I came from, from kind of a visual arts background. Like I had been doing photography in high school and thought that that was what I was going to be doing in college, but then ended up realizing that I could basically do everything I wanted with photography, with writing and not have to like use equipment or have people modeling for me. You know, it's just so much easier. You don't need permission. You don't need a dark room. You don't need, you have control too as a writer. Yeah. At least with fiction. Yeah. Um, because of my visual arts background, like the stuff that I um, naturally gravitate towards, it's like metaphors or just like images, right? And it like structure or plot doesn't come naturally to me at all. It's something that I have to very um, like consciously do. It's not something that I will just like naturally get into a flow state and like plot something, you know? Um, So I feel like figuring out how to do all that other stuff that didn't come naturally to me was a big part of grad school. And then also like kind of figuring out, like I remember a teacher once said something about like, you need a container to put all this stuff in. Like I have all these like images and stuff, but they weren't like building towards anything. Do you know what I mean? Like they weren't there in service of talent of like making a person feel a certain way, or they weren't building on each other to create that feeling in a person. And I think like figuring out that you could do that was something that kind of blew my mind. And so were you working on your novel in graduate school? No, I was only working on stories in graduate school and they were all like very experimental. And I see a lot of them now as being sort of like I was testing things out that then I would use. Then I ended up using my novel. Like, were they publishable? Do you look back on the They've story? all been published, yeah. Oh, they have. So yeah. like, it wasn't like they were just like a... Exercise. An exercise. Like, they actually... like. No, they held together as stories, but like, there are just elements from them that I, like, I would just really gravitate towards unusual forms or towards like epistolary forms or... Um, or like journal type of forms or things like that. Like first person usually. Um, I mean, I tried, I was basically experimenting and trying all sorts of stuff. I think with a lot of them, I just like tried to cram them with as many things as possible. It's like that need to be like tap dancing and say, you know, it's just like they're a little loud. And I feel like I kind of figured out with the novel, I could just really like sit with, you know, I spent like six years writing it. So I could really like immerse myself in the emotional world of it in a way that, um, 
I wasn't really doing as much with the stories. Well, and in the novel, you're working in multiple, it's like multiple POV. How many different yeah. narrators are there in the book? A lot. A lot. Yeah. So it's unusual, you know, yeah. to have that many. Um, and I was reading that, uh, you know, a lot of the, the creative decisions you made around multiple POV, or at least to some degree, was born of your love of oral history. Yeah. So when I was right out of college, I got this job, um, a nonfiction job, and I was doing research for this book about white Southerners that got involved in the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s. And um, so I was like doing a lot of archival research, reading a lot of oral histories, um, talking to people, reading a lot of letters and stuff like that. And then that also, th that book like kind of got killed and nothing really happened with it. But the form ended up inspiring my novel and also like the backstory of um it's not like the main plot but the the kind of foundation or backstory has to do with that in my novel too oh interesting yeah so like serendipitous yeah or it's just like something rising out of the ashes and like becoming something else yeah i love oral history yeah me too i don't know what but i like i want for i want you to articulate why i love it so much like what is it about like having people talk and you know, the first person tell their story. There's like the, there's like the energy I feel in the language, you know, cause it's like someone's really talking. Yeah. Someone's talking to you. Yeah. You know? And then it's also like, I love the, I don't know. There isn't like in good oral history, there's a real narrative build. Like they're telling you a story and you have this prismatic view. Yeah. And I love the way that the voices can contradict one another, mm -hmm. like all talking about the same thing. Yeah. So like it creates this air of mystery or yeah. like, well, what, what is the truth? And yeah. I don't know. It's, I, I find it to be when it's well done, it's like a really exciting form. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think I was really interested in like, what is the truth, right? Like everybody um, has a different perception of events and they're not, I mean, sometimes people lie to themselves, but sometimes they're not even necessarily lying to themselves. They're kind of, it's just like all these things can, all these different truths can contradict and coexist and still, you know, be true. I don't know. Or you can choose to believe some over others. Um, but I think that was exactly what I was most excited about exploring, like okay. figuring that out. And then how do you arrive at the plot of your novel? Like, well, how did these characters occur to you? How did the story of these two sisters and this family I mean, I know, like, I, I can sort of glean how New York and New Orleans factored into right. it as settings. Yeah. But, like, can you talk just about, like, the uh, the evolution of the, the story itself and, and how it came to be? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because it's not autobiographical, like the locations are. That was my real question. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not autobiographical. I have a brother who's 14 years younger than me. So I've, I've always wanted a sister, but I feel, you know, it's a book about two sisters and that like intense bond. Um, and my parents are not like the parents in the book, but I think like the emotions in it are autobiographical, like those feelings of wanting things you can't have of, um, yeah. So I, to answer your question, I don't know exactly how the stuff emerged kind of slowly, you know, and I think I was thinking a lot um, about like an artist and muse and that sort of relationship and the way that's always sort of presented from the artist's point of view. Right. But when, when it's presented from the muse's point of view, it's probably different. 
And I was always thinking too about how, like, I remember when I was in my twenties, my mom got me this book on like how to be a muse or something like that. Or like, it was a book about muses or something. And I just remember being like, ugh, about it when she gave it to me. Cause it's like, I don't want to be a muse. I want to be the person who gets to do the seeing and the looking, you know, I don't want to be the one that's looked at. Like that doesn't interest me. But also for some reason in my mind, it seemed like those two things were like exclusive when they aren't like you could be doing the looking and getting looked at. But I guess like when you're a woman in your like early twenties, you're getting looked at a lot and you're not, you don't, it doesn't, at least for me, I don't even think I felt like I could really do any of the looking myself or like was allowed to. Okay. I, I have like multiple things I want to ask you about. <laughs> I'm going to, but like first and most immediately, just before it slips my mind, um, I was just a couple of days ago thinking about basic human biology mm-hmm. and the cultural moment and historical moment that we're in and the evolution of, um, uh, the ways in which we, uh, treat one another, you know, mm-hmm. there's, I mean, it's always fluid, mm-hmm. but I was thinking in particular about looking because mm-hmm. I, I love to look at people mm-hmm. and I'm a guy. I especially love to look at I guess I tend to look at women more than men. Mm-hmm. And if there's like in, in Los Angeles, there's like this surreal beauty, like mm-hmm. human beauty all around. And I found this my whole life that like if a beautiful person, but especially a woman, just cause that's how I'm biologically wired, like walks through the room, like my tendency is to want to just be like, like, you know, <laughs> but that is considered rude. I, I think I've always kind of tempered that, you know, like mm-hmm. I don't want to get caught and like, but it's so, it's so natural to me mm-hmm. to appreciate that. Like, I'm not creepy. Like, I'm just like, and I, I think I, in my head, I was like, why is that so bad? Like, and I think if a really handsome or like good looking or stylish guy walks in, I'll sort of do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Just not with like the same, like, like wiring or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, not the same effect, but. I don't know. I guess it's like, I think I was thinking about how there's like this kind of social stigma around staring at people, Mm -hmm. but it's like, if you, you know, first of all, you're just beautiful. You're a beautiful creature. And then second of all, like you're wearing like clothes that you obviously want to be noticed. So as long as you're not being like, like, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, Uh what's the appropriate response? I feel so, it, it all feels so unnatural to like suppress just looking at somebody. Yeah, I don't know. know. It's frustrating to me. I mean, I feel like I stare at people all the time. That's okay. But but like not usually, I don't think it's in the same way. I don't know that I'm appreciating. I'm just like curious about people, but I don't know that I'm like leering at people. No, I'm not leering at anybody. (laughs) But if somebody's like really be like attractive or beautiful, like it's entirely natural. Right. It's so unnatural to be like, I don't don't see you. I'm respectful of your, you know, it's like, come on. Like Mm -hmm. you don't want to be like bug eyed and like leering and creepy at somebody, but I don't know. It just, it's like, I don't know. It's like a flower or a beautiful tree or like a rainbow or something, you know, like that's kind of how I conceive of it. And I think it's like way creepier to like, I don't know, be like walking up to them in the grocery store and being like, Hey, it's not that. Right. It's just like, Oh, like there goes a a beautiful thing in the world. (laughs) Is that making any sense at all? It is. Yeah. No, I mean, I feel like everybody has that impulse, but I guess it's also, I mean, so in, in the book, when it's like the, the artist and the muse, I think that is how he sees himself 
right? He he doesn't see himself as doing anything wrong by being like inspired by this beautiful thing in the world, right? But I guess her, she feels like he's in the process taking something from her. Right. And so it's like I understand how he wouldn't feel that he's doing anything wrong and that he's like making great art and that, you know, sacrifices have to be made for art or whatever. Well, that was kind of my next question. Yeah. It feels like in your book, you're working that out yeah. for yourself. Cause it's yeah. like, and it makes me think of that Joan Didion quote, which I'm going to botch, but it's like the writer's always selling somebody out. <laughs> like there, there's something consumptive about the creative act yeah. where you're taking, you know, you're, you're drawing from your experiences and the people that are around you and you know, you're kind of taking a bite out of people to build your art. Yeah, you're a vampire if you're a writer. I think that's true. I mean, I don't think, I don't think it's necessarily literal. Like as I said, for me, it's not. I'm not drawing on anybody specifically autobiographically and like from my life in that way. But I'm definitely still drawing from my life and from things that I felt. You know, I'm just giving those feelings to these people who have different you know, issues and dynamics and are different people than me. So do you feel like all these people, like these characters, as many as there are and as disparate as their personalities and interests and makeup, um, are mm. that it's basically like they're all collages or composites of different parts of you. Well, I don't think it's necessarily that, but I feel like I have to be them in order to write it, if that makes sense. Okay. So it feels like kind of, it's not so much that I'm working myself out through them, but I do have to find those aspects of myself in order to create them. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It kind of is the same thing, but it feels very much like, um, when I'm writing, it feels like I'm possessed, you know, and I don't, when it's going well, like not when I'm plotting stuff out, but when I'm actually like in the flow of things. Um, it doesn't feel like I'm making any conscious decisions, you know, I feel like I'm sort of like inside of the body of these other people and seeing the world through them. And so like, I empathize with them. I mean, I, as a person have opinions about all these characters, but at the same time, I can also see what their opinions are and I see their points of view. It doesn't mean that I agree with them or like them, but like, I understand why they would think that what they're doing is okay, even if what they're doing isn't okay. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of like puppetry. Why am I? Yeah, thinking? no, exactly. It feels like a puppet. Like it feel like I had written this short story where this girl was possessed by a ghost and just that feeling of like, um, like a hand in a glove kind of feeling. And it, that's what it feels like when you're writing, you're like, well, that's what it feels like when you're writing. Yeah. It's, that's not what me. it feels like for you. <laughs> no. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I wish I could inhabit characters like that and really feel like, you know what I'm saying? Like this external character. Like I always feel like it's me working out my own. I'm too stuck on myself. I need to get outside of myself more. Or just, you know, find yourself in them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really, um, like, I don't like writing nonfiction or memoir because, or I find it very difficult not just because there's like all of this stuff of like, I'm going to offend people and like, I hate confrontation in my life and I don't want to hurt people's feelings and I'll feel bad. Like there's all that, which I feel like makes the process like a lot less fun. But then there's also just a lot of stuff where like, if I'm work, it, it's just annoying for me to have to explain everything in order to work stuff out to get to the point where I'm working stuff out. Cause it's like, I don't want to write about stuff I already understand. You know, like I'm writing to understand something new. 
and I feel like I already understand myself and well, or like I, there's a lot about like my family dynamics that I do understand. And then to get to the ones that I don't understand and want to understand, it requires me explaining so much stuff that I already get. Do you know what I mean? That like to get, to catch everybody else up to that point just seems like really boring to me. It's more efficient in fiction and more fun. Yeah. It sounds yeah. like. That's how it feels. So it took you six years to write it? Well, I started in 2012 and I got an agent in 2015. So I had like a pretty full draft three years. I mean, I had a full draft three years in and like one year in, I started over or a year and a half in, I started from scratch from the beginning. What, what changed or like what instigated that? Um, so I was like at a writing retreat where I was there for like a month and I was working on it and I just felt like I was hitting a wall and I didn't really understand what was the problem. And in the story I had, the mother had died. And so everything I wrote felt like it had to be about grief and I didn't want to write a novel about grief. It just wasn't what what I wanted to be exploring. Like, it's just with such a heavy feeling that I couldn't really explore all this other stuff that I wanted to talk about. So then I brought her back to life. And then I had to start over. That That is a significant change. Yeah. Dead or alive is yeah. a significant change. And then, and then after I got my agent, I did a bunch of revision with him for like about another, you know, year or two. Significant changes or more like fine tuning stuff, mm, I guess for two years. Adding, like mostly adding stuff. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And changing. Yeah. Not really, not really changing much of the first half, but changing stuff in the second half. And where were you living when you were writing this? Were you in LA? Yeah. You I see- was in LA. I, I, yeah, I basically, I wrote the whole thing in LA, like various coffee shops across Northeast LA. <laughs> Really? So, and you moved from after graduate school finished in St. Louis, you moved out here. Yeah, we moved. um, So after graduate school, I was there for another year teaching on a fellowship. And then we moved out here and it was for, because I thought I was going to be doing screenwriting. And so I got here and I was like, well, first I need to finish this novel real quick. Like, (laughs) (laughs) like just a few months and I'll be, and then I'll be ready to, to pursue this other thing because I just, I just knew that if I had any other projects I could work on, I would abandon this because this was so hard and difficult and dark. And, you know, if you have to be like a puppet inside of a person who's doing like really difficult, unpleasant things, you have to be experiencing them, you know, to really write it. You really have to go there. And it just was really unpleasant. You know, it just was really unpleasant a lot of the time. How do you, yeah, that's an interesting thing to try to negotiate. Like you're inhabiting these characters lives and you're going to these dark places and you have to be unflinching in order for, in order to, uh, do a good job on the pay on the page, but also in order to do their life, the characters lives justice. Yeah. Um, but it can be a slog. And I guess sometimes like, I, I don't know if you've ever run into this, but I, I would imagine many fiction writers run into like wondering, like, is this too dark? Like, is this going to be, is this, am I going to just drag the reader through muck, you know, and create kind of just like a bummer of an experience for people? I worry about that. Like the reader's experience, like, yeah. does there have, you know, like, is, does there have to be redemption somewhere like a, some ray of light do you yeah. know what i'm saying like how do you yeah. how do you navigate that darkness on the page and feel like uh it's going to be okay for your reader 
like not like okay like emotionally but right. like like an uh, like a um a satisfying experience or something yeah well i think like authentic to you you seem to believe that there is a ray of light so it would be kind of inauthentic for you to write a book where there wasn't right i mean maybe i just can't tolerate total darkness or something yeah i don't know that i can either i mean i don't know that i believe in it um i don't know that my book is that i mean i guess my book is dark i don't know um yeah and i don't mean to suggest that it that it is. I just mean like parts of it definitely are. Yeah. Like it gets like, yeah. it, like you, you're going to dark places on the page, which yeah. is like, that's absolutely fine. Mm -hmm. I just think it's, it's hard to do maybe sometimes like the creative process, like you said, is really difficult. Yeah. And it's just like, it's a rendering question really not about, um, well, I think you can't really think about your audience when you're writing. Cause I think you can't be in it and out of it at the same time, you know? Mm. So, I think that's more of like an editorial question for later, but I just feel like, I don't know. I mean, you have to completely trust in this process and that's very difficult to let go and trust in that way that like wherever it will take you is the right place for it to go, you know? And if it isn't like you will feel it cause you're going to kind of reach some sort of obstacle and then it won't feel right. I mean, that, that was what happened where I had to start over. Like I didn't, I couldn't immediately formulate what was wrong. Like it took me a, a lot of thinking to figure out why it didn't feel right. But just on an intuitive level, like I couldn't move forward. It was boring. It was kind of like skimming the surface and I couldn't go deep for some reason. And so then it was like moving backwards to figure out where, where I disconnected from it. And how much had you, had you done when you started over? Like how much was on the page? I don't know, like 200 pages, maybe. Were you demoralized? Pages. Yeah, it was totally demoralizing. I mean, there's so many parts of this process that were so <laughs> demoralizing. You know, like I feel like I've been broken, you know, after writing this book, I feel completely um, just there were so many parts of the process that were difficult. Um, Why did you go through it? Why do you think you put yourself through that for six years? What was it about this that you needed to say, like an express and externalize? and make sense of, you know, I don't know. I feel like it's just one of those things where, so like I could have pursued other projects or at least put this on pause and like done something that would have maybe given me like some outside validation or positive reinforcement. So I wasn't just like working on this in a void for so long in this like dark, sad place. But I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I felt like very, uh, determined because I think at some point it stopped feeling like, um, it was mine and it felt like it was its own thing. And then it's, it's kind of easier to be of service to this other thing. You know, it's, it's no longer about like me and my ego. It's about like this thing wants to be alive and I, I'm the only one that can help it. So I need to help it. You're like the midwife. Yeah, I guess. And now that it is alive, it's like, well, thank God. I don't want to ever look at it. <laughs> <on my face laughs> <again. laughs> Kidding. So what about screenwriting? Like, is that something you're still into? Is that like now that's what you're focused on? Yeah, that's what I'm working on right now. Like a, like a feature film? Yeah, I'm working on a feature film right now. Do you have like, are you wired into that world living here in LA? Have you made I'm not really wired into that world. I just, I'm working on this with someone who I had, um, who's like an old friend who I'd worked on movies, you know, back when I was working on movies back then. Okay. Um, but I'm not really connected to that world at all. And this is like the first time. Is this person that you're partnering since. with wired into the world? Yeah. He, he's a, he's a director. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, can, can he like, can we do, will you say who he is? 
His name is Andrew Wonder. Oh, okay. Like, can Andrew Wonder, like, is it like... I don't, like, he I don't, took my author photo, too. Did he? <laughs> Shout out to Andrew, yeah. He, he's multi-talented. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. I'm just always like fascinated endlessly by the mechanics of how the, like, how, you know, movies and television come to fruition. It's such like a tedious, mysterious, unpredictable, multifaceted process. Yeah. I don't really actually know that much about it. I mean, I, um, I'm interested in it and I'm also interested in writing another novel. Oh, you are? Yeah. Is it in the works? Um, like very early stages. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to this residency in January and hopefully I'm going to start it then. How long? Well, I've been doing re- uh, the residency yeah. two weeks. I have a kid, so it's like kind of limited. How that's a, that's can... like two weeks is the max, right? Yeah, that's kind of my max. Where Where's the residency? Uh, Virginia VCCA, which is where I was just talking about like being there and For a starting month. over with this book. Where in Virginia? Uh, it's kind of near, there's a place called Sweetbriar College, which is like an all women's um horse like they have a lot of horses i don't know it's a it's a college okay um and i think they maybe rent land from them or something like that all right it's rural it's beautiful i don't know no it sounds it's, great they feed you that's like the main <laughs> thing and i can't feed myself so somebody needs to be feeding me at all times well that's what the, that's how these residencies work right you just shut yourself in a cabin and then people bring you food yeah ideally yeah that's a good deal yeah i've never done one of those Oh. I need, I need, I need to go to a podcasting residency. Do they do that? That's a good question. I don't know. There's like <laughs> transom, they, but that's more like, um, school. Oh, what is transom? Oh, it's this. So my husband does radio and he teaches sometimes at transom. Um, it's, uh, it's really great organization. They teach radio. They teach you how to do journal, like radio journalism. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Is that what your husband does? Yeah. He works for KCRW. Oh, no shit. Yeah. That's cool. Doing- journalism that's like the for people listening that's like the uh, los angeles npr affiliate yeah right mm-hmm. and he does like journalism for them mm-hmm. awesome yeah what i know his he name had a, he had a show called uh welcome to la his name is david weinberg oh okay that's awesome yeah um all right so you got a book in the works a feature film script in the works you've got a book out that's yeah. receiving like starred reviews you externalized it you never want to look at it again <laughs> And I'm fascinated, I guess, before I let you go, I, you know, I just, I find myself fascinated by this, like, is trance state too strong of a way of phrasing how you get when you're actually... No, that's exactly what it is, yeah. I want to be able to get into a trance state. Yeah. I need to be able to free, like, it seems so freeing. Yeah. Well, I do notice that usually before getting into that trance state, it's very difficult and I feel very frustrated and, um, it's like banging your head against a, you know, brick wall. Like it really just feels so impenetrable. And, um, I mean, I think other people can access that trance state much more easily. Maybe, I don't know, but it, it's really like you have to just keep going and going and going and eventually you exhaust yourself yeah or whatever yeah whatever it is that's like holding you back from it you break through and you get there but it does just take like an enormous amount of faith and it's very frustrating before you get there and you definitely have to be um i mean for me what helps is i i structure stuff like constantly i'm constantly outlining and stuff and that uses a completely different part of your brain so i feel like i have to kind of know 
what I'm looking for before I can get into that space. If that makes sense. No, that does make sense. Yeah, because otherwise I'm just kind of wandering around aimlessly. Do you, do you, are you, are you outlining like in the context of your novel, are you outlining chapter by chapter or is it like big picture stuff or everything, everything, everything. Yeah. You're mapping constantly mapping constantly and it's fluid. It's changing as the story dictates. It's not like you're like etching it into stone and then it's like, no, no, it changes. No, it changes all the time. But I think there's, um, like, I think some people are really naturally organized and just kind of have a map in their head and they don't need to like, they, they don't, even have to do it consciously because they just know it. But for me, I'm so disorganized and I have such a bad sense of direction, like in all, like literally and, and just in general, like just, there's something about like moving through space and time (laughs) that I get really flustered by. So I feel like having, um, something written down is the only way I can like stay tethered to it because I can't keep it in my head. Do you, are you doing that by hand? Or are you typing it? I'm doing it by hand. I think I have to do it by hand. And are you, but you're drafting on your keyboard. Yeah. I, I write, I type everything that I'm writing, but I do like sometimes take note. I mean, I do a lot of kind of figuring stuff out in a journal type of thing, writing by hand, but the actual writing, I always just type. Huh. So if I'm trying to figure out, like, there's a lot of kind of journaling that goes that I'm doing before I'm structuring. And then once that's sort of done, I start writing and then that changes. You know, it's like a constantly evolving process. But the trance state is like the best feeling in the world. I'm going to try my best to get there. I've been trying for (laughs) a long time. Um, And I just want to say, too, that I for at least like the last 90 seconds was suppressing a sneeze. <laughs> Go for it. It's now, no, it's now gone. Oh, well. I, I buried it somehow. I don't know where it went, but I feel a sense of accomplishment that I, feelings. I just want to acknowledge that <laughs> it's one thing I was able to do. Uh, it's such a pleasure to meet you. It's really nice to meet you too. Great. Congratulations to you on your book. I wish you all the best of luck on the next book and on the screenwriting and on uh, life here in LA. Are you going to stay here for a while? Or are you going to like pack up and leave? Like what's the, what's the impulse? The urge to pack up and leave is so strong, but we, I think we're going to stay here for some time. I don't know. It is harder. Yeah. When you have a kid, you just don't have like the luxury of just doing that. Okay. As easily. So I don't know. I think I might be here for a while. All right. Well, it's a great to meet you. It's great to meet you too. Thank you. All right. There you go. Katya Apakina. The Deeper the Water, the Uglier the Fish is her novel. Debut. Debut novel. Out from $2 Radio. Go get it. Katya Apakina, The Deeper the Water, the Uglier the Fish. If you want to find her on the internet, it's apakina.com. And you can follow her on Twitter at Katya Apakina. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to email me, if you have something you'd like to tell me, the the uh, email address is letters at otherppl.com. Sorry, I'm checking uh, a score of a sports game. I'm an American male sports fan. What else was I going to say? Oh, don't forget about the app, the uh, Other People app. It's out there now. Go get it. The Other People app. It's free. It's a great way to listen. Thanks to LitHub for uh, syndicating the show. If you want to support the show, patreon.com slash other PPL pod. I forgot to mention that this uh, mountain lion up in Griffith Park, it's 
you know, there's it's not a healthy lion in terms of like the breeding and the because these uh, lions that are up in the Santa Monica Mountains and this one in particular is an isolate. There's no mate. There's no other lions up there for the lion to mate with. And I think it was, you know, it is the progeny. Am I using that word right? It is the descendant of lions that were sort of like a small gene pool that sort of inbred. Anyway, it freaks me out a little bit. It's not, I mean, it's a big park. It's a lot of space. It's the biggest urban park in the country, I believe, in terms of, like, acreage. But it's still not a huge amount of space. This lion's out there. Coyotes everywhere. I don't know what I'm saying. Freaking myself out. Speaking of freaking myself out, I got a sty in my eye. You ever had one of these? Like, my eyelids started to swell up a little bit? Like, am I dying? What is this? I went to the uh, dermatologist. I also have this, like, thing going on with my fingernail. It's, like, falling apart. I'm old and gross. That's what I said to my dermatologist. I was like, I'm old and gross. Like, this is what happens. Old and gross. Old and gross at the holidays. Over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. And grandmother's old and gross. (laughs) 